Last week, we witnessed the process of selecting the House Speaker in the U.S. Congress. This position is the second in order of succession after the President and the Vice President. I'm not going to offer any political commentary except to say one thing. The process was not a consensus-focused process. It was not trying to get as many supporter out of the entire House of Representatives with 435 members, but rather just to get to 218, just enough to be over the 50% majority requirement. A study from MIT in 2015 that I read called The Rise of Partisanship and Super Cooperators in the U.S. House of Representatives showed that in 1977, there were 12,921, almost 13,000 cooperations across party line in roll call votes. In 2007, 30 years later, when the number of roll call votes was 75% higher there were only 181 cross-party cooperators in roll call votes, from 13,000 to 181. Now, we know that our political divide is only growing and it's becoming worse, uh, and it's affecting all of us. But this is not the topic of this podcast episode. The topic is decision-making and the relationship that it has with trust right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And I want to start this episode with, uh, with a few stories. The first one uh, has to do with the Wi-Fi technology that you're using every day. And when Wi-Fi started, really the standard was created. Uh, the first instan- instantiation of the standard was 1991. Then in 1999 came what was called the 802.11b, which was really the, uh, the one that, that launched Wi-Fi and the Wi-Fi organization. And I, I was part of the Wi-Fi organization in these efforts and uh, served uh, quite a few years on the board of the Wi-Fi Alliance. Well, this is a 2002 story when Broadcom came up with their variant called uh, 54G. So it was a variant of 802.11. It was their interpretation that would take it to the next generation. This was when we needed to come up with the next speed, uh, the 54 uh, megabit per second, five times faster than what Wi-Fi was before when it was launched. And um, at that time, there were really three different directions that this could have gone to. It was uh, one was uh, led by Broadcom and their version, another was uh, led by Intersail and their version, and the third one was led by Texas Instruments and our version. I, I worked for Texas Instruments at the time. And we each pulled in different directions, and there was a lot, a lot of lobbying done be- behind the scenes to try and get to the uh, majority required 
to create a standard in IEEE. And IEEE is the uh, uh, Institute for uh, Engineering and Electrical Engineering. That's the, the organization that really creates the standards while the Wi-Fi Alliance was uh, assuring interoperability and testing for inter interoperability and certifying products for compliance. So we needed to come up with the next generation 11G. There was a lot of uh, uh, strife between the different companies, the different groups, and um, it was just a matter of let's reach majority. And uh, I remember th this thing was almost dead. We, we almost lost the Wi-Fi industry. The Wi-Fi wi was going to develop in, in different directions and uh, possibly not reach where it is today at least not based on that standard. At that time, what I suggested on the board of the Wi-Fi Alliance is that the three of us, uh, me representing TI, uh, one person representing uh, Intersil and another person representing um, uh, Broadcom, or working for them, really, that we take off for, we were kind of considered, at least as the companies, uh, we were considered the thought leaders or the direction setters in, in Wi-Fi in general. And I suggested the three of us take off for two weeks and we meet face-to-face -face and we try and come up with a proposal, a compromise, because nobody gets 100% of what they wanted, but something that we can sell to the rest. And we did. And we sold it to the rest. And then we got 802.11g and then N and then AC and, and everything since then. But we reached consensus. It was only once we got off of this 50% majority, or in fact, in IEEE, in order to pass the standard, you, you needed 75%, which was almost impossible. We reached consensus and we created a standard. The next story is the 2004 story. Uh, I was leading the, uh, I was the general manager of a business unit in TI. This is after I already moved uh, to Texas. And uh, Apple was one of our customers. We had a, a component that we were building that went into the iPod. And at that time, iPod was, uh, at least Apple was promising that it's going to go from uh, less than a million units a year to more than 10 million units a year, or more than eight, I think was their promise. Uh, they ended up shipping, I believe, 16 million units in 2004, that year. And it was really the creation of uh, the iTunes music store. So it was a completely different way to use it. Uh, but that's that's not the, the issue here. I had a salesperson in uh, California that was the account manager for Apple. And, and the way these things work is that uh, you, as a general manager, you can't share cost information with your salespeople because you're afraid you don't trust them and you're afraid that they're going to sell it for the uh, uh, lowest possible price that you would allow them just so that they can get the business and, and probably get a commission. Well, the thing is, she knew the customer. I did not. She knew them personally. I mean, really knew them personally. Um, and, and I admired her for that, for, for how well she knew their personalities, their habits. I mean, she became friends with the customers, which, which typically is something that you're afraid of. As a general manager, you're afraid that the, 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 your salesperson is actually on, on the customer side and not on your side. So 
when the customer says, and, and they always do, that they need a better price, the salesperson starts saying, well, you know, I can give you this price and this price. The general manager typically tells the salesperson, this is the lowest price you can give them. They try to get it above that price. If they can't, what the customer would say is bring the general manager over. And the general manager comes over, and that's when they um, uh, they give a better price than the salesperson said that was our walkaway price or the lowest price that they could give. And because the general manager overrides what the salesperson uh, has done or actually gave the salesperson a price that was higher than what they really, the lowest they could, could really go to, uh, that's why this process keeps going on and on and on. Well, uh, when she came to me, and, and that's the salesperson's name is Teresa Benson, and, and I loved her for that and, and for the relationship that, that she had. And uh, she uh, still to date, I think, uh, was one of the best salespeople I've ever met and worked with. And what she did was um, she came back and said, you know, the customer needs uh, a lower price for our product. Um, and what I said was, look, this is this is our cost. This is our cost reduction plan. And this is the gross margin or the profit, gross profit margin that uh, if you go below that, my my life here at the company is going to be very difficult. Um, so don't go below that that gross margin. And and it was it was unique that that I would share or a general manager would share that cost information, cost reduction plan. But here's the thing. She knew the customer way better than I did. She knew where she could take this. And I would rather trust her to make the right decision than, you know, be the one making a decision based on way, way less than the level of knowledge that she had. Well, sure enough, uh, she gave a price. Uh, the customer said, uh, Apple, in this case, said they needed a better price. Uh, they, she, she did the math and she gave them the price, uh, a certain price. And they said, bring in the general manager. Well, they flew me in. I came in, had a meeting. They asked for a better price. And I said, the price you're going to get, the best price you're going to get is whatever is the best price that she's going to give you. I completely delegated the pricing to her. Within boundaries, I, I told her what the boundaries, what my boundaries are. I told her what the cost and cost reduction plan was. And I told her what, uh, you know, the boundaries of when my life becomes a living hell in the company. Uh, and she played within those boundaries and she got probably a better price than I could have gotten. Um, and, and, you know, at no point in time was it not my responsibility anymore. So that's story number two. Story number three is almost a repeat of the first story with Wi-Fi, except that in 2020, I was appointed to the Plano, that's the city that I, I live in, Plano, Texas, uh, the Plano Comprehensive Plan Review Committee, or CPRC. And when they, they volunteered me to do this committee and appointed me, uh, they, they put a schedule of about 25 meetings, which I did not realize what I'm getting myself into, because uh, those meetings take a lot of time. Uh, take a lot of preparation. And, and here I am, I, I have my own business that, that I'm building. I, I hardly have time for it. But you know, this is my community. Um, and the city was split about 50-50 across different things, including the uh, elections to city council. So city council, 
and I'm not going to go into what the topics are, but was and, and it was not political in terms of it, it was not Republicans versus uh, Democrats. It, it was really around the topic uh, in this city. This city was split 50-50. City council was split 50-50. Uh, the, uh, there was even a lawsuit over the previous comprehensive plan, which eventually, uh, that, that well, I'm, I'm not going to go into the detail, but the, the lawsuit prevailed and uh, uh, the, the previous comprehensive plan that was created in 2015 and 16 was, was put aside and they decided to create a committee. Uh, which which I was a very big proponent on. Of course, I didn't realize that I'm going to end up serving on that committee. We had 16 members. And the way we did discussions was for the majority of the time, uh, a majority. You know, if we can get majority. And, and I have to admit, by the way, that one of the best things that ever happened was that the majority requirement for this committee to pass that um, comprehensive plan was 75%, not 50%. The committee was split eight and eight because the committee members were appointed two members by every city council member and city council was split four and four. So we were split eight and eight. Uh, this we spent an entire year. And by the way, you realize this was 2020. So you do realize what happened in March of 2020. The pandemic hit and, and we started first we canceled two meetings, then we started having the meetings over Zoom, which, uh, you know, I'll, I'll dedicate a, a whole episode to uh, trusting remote employees and how do you build trust uh, and can you build trust with employees working remotely. But that's besides the point. So uh, this is the end of 2020, the end of our first year of work. And guess what? We're 50-50. There's no way we're going to get to 75%. At that point, I, I kind of recalled what happened with Wi-Fi, and I suggested, why don't we take, because even in a committee of 16, you can realize who are the, the thought or trend leaders. Um, why don't we go, and it was really four of us, why don't we go off and... Um, outside of this committee, form this subcommittee and try and reach a consensus on uh, what I like to call the guiding principles that ended up being part of, of the, the plan. Uh, we create the guiding principles. And if we can agree on them, the four of us can sell it to the rest to agree on. We deliberated for about, I think, two months, uh, maybe three as a subcommittee w w with the rest of the committee not meeting at all. And, and you know, when we started on this process, uh, it, it felt like, you know, we're, we're not going to reach consensus. We ended up bringing it back to the committee, bringing something that the four of us could stand behind. And, and this goes back into the first episode of this podcast, season one, episode one, when I talked about what is the right size of a team. The smaller the team was, the more intense, the more intimate uh, the interactions were. Um, and that built trust. And, and it built something that we sold to the rest. One member of the bigger community uh, committee uh, uh, moved to another city. So we were now 15. We passed the comprehensive plan with a vote of 15 to 0. It was a 100% 
uh, I'm not going to call it consensus, but 100% agreement. Enough stories. I did a LinkedIn poll. And, and so far, I got only 17 votes, and this is why I'm going to start doing the polls on a Monday. So by the time I record the episode on a Saturday or a Sunday, I will have uh, more votes. But I had 17 votes, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, and I asked, uh, there are three main different types of uh, decision-making processes. One of them is the consultative. This is where the CEO or the leader, the leader of the team says, I need to make a decision. I want to get advice from members of the team. Now, there are those who are going to say, I want to get advice from every person individually. There are those who are going to say, I want to put all of us in one room or all of you in one room, come up with something suggested to me. But at the end of the day, this is my decision. I'm the one making the decision and I may override you. 59%, which I'm, I'm guessing uh, out of 17 votes, so we're probably talking about um, 10, uh, 10 who said that uh, this is their preferred uh, decision-making method, the consultative, the, the, the leader makes the decision at the end. Uh, the 12%, which in my back of the envelope math is two, two of those 17, said that they prefer majority, so just as long as we hit majority, uh, 24%, which is probably about four, uh, preferred consensus, and six, uh, 6% said other. So one person said other. And uh, and really, I, I got a lot of insights from that because, uh, for example, the, the person who said other, I believe that was... Uh, how she, the person who, who made the following comment, she said the process is contextual, which is really brilliant. I mean, this is different processes or, or different decisions require different methods. So, you know, there is no uh, one that's right and, and the others are wrong. This is something small, you know, we, we need to decide, uh, do we go to this restaurant or that restaurant? Um, you know, the, you, you want to get to the decision pretty quickly and, and not spend, uh, you know, all of your retirement uh, years on uh, making that decision. Uh, if the decision has significant impact, which to me, by, by the way, and I'm getting back to the introduction to this episode, the selection of the house speaker has more significant impact. I would want to see consensus and not just majority. I would want to see more. Um, so it is contextual. Some contexts will require one type of decision making. Others will require another type. Uh, and I think, and by the way, I'll, I'll remind you that trust is contextual as well. Uh, that's the second law of trust. But I think that one of the things that would have a big impact on building trust within the team, building trust for the leader of that team, is not necessarily being consistent in selecting the same method all the time. Like, I'm the leader, I make the decisions, or we're going to go with majority, or we're going to go with consensus all the time. I don't think that that consistency in selecting the method is what's going to build trust as much as upfront state what the process will be and why. So as a leader, I would say, 
this time on this decision, we're just going to go with majority. We need to move quickly. There's no significant impact, maybe, or whatever the topic is. We're going to go with majority. So whatever the rest of you decide, then then that's what uh, the majority of you decide. That's where we're going to go. And, you know, maybe I'm going to be the uh, tiebreaker like uh, the vice president in the Senate. Uh, and maybe it's not required. Maybe that would be what I limit myself to. Um, and I would explain why. And, and if this time this is something more significant, I want to get consensus. Uh, and, and I'll talk about what consensus really is. But uh, I want to get consensus. I want to get all people bought in or as many as possible bought in. I want to really understand the objections, not only uh, get to 50%. When you're trying to get to 50%, you, you don't really listen to the objections. When you're trying to reach consensus, you listen to objections. So I think what would buy trust, again, is not the selection of one method. And, and you already see that I'm kind of leaning towards consensus building. Um, but it's not that. I think it's the fact that you state up front what the process will be. And then you actually implement it the way you stated it up front. Because you're going to lose a lot of trust if at the beginning you say, uh, we're going to reach consensus. We're going to do our best to reach consensus. Uh, but then at the end, uh, you just go with the majority and, and you don't care about the people who objected or, or try to accommodate them. So I think what would buy uh, some um, what would buy some trust to the leader is stating up front what the process will be and actually doing it. Let's talk about the different types, the three different types, main types. I'll start with the consultative. And this is where the leader makes the final decision. I'm, I'm really listening to you. I'm listening to the debate. and um, uh, But I'm going to be making the decision. One of the first impacts that, that I see is that when you do that, and when you state that this is what you're going to do, you actually take away accountability from people from the people who are advising you. You're, you're telling them, hey, listen, you're, you're just a consultant here. You're, you're just an advisor. Um, I'm, I'm going to override it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to make the final decision. And, and as such, you know, you may be tempted to just offer one side of things, try to influence it in your direction, uh, because you don't feel accountable for the final decision that will be made. <laughs> I remember... Uh, I used my daughters to uh, uh, edit my books. I mean, one of the editing rounds, uh, there, there are multiple editing rounds and some are done by professional editors. Some are done by me. The, the first ones are done by me to clean up uh, my own mess and uh, <laughs> that I can find. Uh, but I, I remember I used Shira. Uh, Shira, I think, was still in high school. And uh, she gave me her feedback. And, uh, you know, 80% of her feedback, I actually implemented. It was good feedback, but not 100%, 80%. I'm not saying the other 20% were bad. I'm, I'm just saying I did not implement it. And when she saw that I didn't implement the 20%, what she said was, this is the last time I'm doing this for you. I'm like, really? Because why? Because I didn't accept 100% of what you said. I accepted 80%. And, and, you know, she, she matured since then. But um, when you say I'm going to be the one making the decision, things like what Shira felt 
may occur and people will feel that they're not getting uh they're they don't need to be responsible and by the way one of the reason is that they don't feel uh that they get the autonomy and and from that moment on they just go you know i'm, I'm just gonna behave in a cya attitude and they will trust you less because they don't get that autonomy and they will show less accountability now uh you know when i do that i i um if I tell the people, no, I want you to, to be the ones making the decisions, that's that's delegation. I, I delegated it. Does it remove my responsibility? And the answer is no. I'm still responsible. I'm the leader. I'm responsible. And, you know, sure, there are leaders who are going to delegate the decision making to people who might be the right people. And then if this blows up in their faces... They're going to go, well, I didn't make the decision. I, I passed it on. I, I delegated it to somebody else. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay Teflon clean and smooth. Um, you have to ask yourself as, as a leader, am I more competent to make that decision? And, and I think once again, it's going to hurt your trustworthiness if you're a leader that makes decisions in an area where you are less competent than others specifically others in the team that gave you that advice. What happens if the decision-making is based on majority? And, and this is, you know, whether there is a leader or not. And, and this time we're just going to take out the leader and say within the team, what happens within the team? Uh, when all you're doing is seeking majority, this becomes political. You know, I'm, I'm not going to try to convince you. There are going to be a lot of backroom and hallway agreements. Um, you know, there's going to be the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting. And I think I'll mention this uh, later. This is when we start raising the walls of distrust. It becomes us versus them. Um uh, you you spend lower time, uh, less time and, and less intimacy with everyone, with people who hold the opposite decisions, uh, the, the, whole, the opposite positions on this decision. Uh, you spend less time with them because you don't think that you're going to convince them. And so what's the point? Let's try and convince those that we might. Uh, as a result, you're not listening to them. You're not listening to their concerns. You're not listening to other the other side of the story. And trust me when I tell you, every story has at least two sides. Um, so, you know, you, you're relying more on the existing personality compatibility, which is one of the strongest uh, components of, of uh, uh, trust. Uh, by, by gathering, by, by agreeing, by, by being part of, of one group, and you are less seeking to establish personality compatibility with the others. You know, I found that shared values had an 86% correlation with trust. 86%. That was the highest that I found in, in any of my, my surveys. And uh, what I find there is that if we are trying to rely on majority we don't really value other people's values. We only value the values of those who are close to us, who are share uh, the, the same values as we are. 
And, and hey, this is the highest correlation with trust. So that's what happens with majority. Let's see what happens with consensus. Well, I'll start with the definition of consensus. And, and I looked at the dictionary. And you know, when, when a topic is really important, dictionary is probably not where you want to go. Because on one hand, it said uh, general agreement, unanimity. Let me clarify this. Consensus is not unanimity. And even though some dictionaries claim that consensus and unanimity are synonyms, they're not. Uh, I, I really prefer the first two words, general agreement. The, the second definition from the same, I think that was Merriam-Webster's uh, dictionary, said the judgment arrived by most of those concerned. A again, um, I'm not sure if I would say most. Um uh, those concerned is an important part. People who really have, who are going to be affected by the decision, uh, make that decision or how they call it, uh, judgment. Uh, another dictionary, I think this was Collins, uh, said a consensus is general agreement among a group, among a group of people. Again, a general agreement. So to me, consensus is when you go, so can I say, this is how I like to summarize, can I say that we're agreeing that, you know, A, B, C, D, and I look around the room, don't have to be the leader, by the way, to do that. I look around the room and I see heads nodding. They go, yeah, yeah, I think that's a general agreement. To reach consensus, everything has to be in the open. I mean, you really have to put everything on the table. A key way to reach consensus is that you have to be listening not just listening to people who uh, share your positions. I mean, those are the last people you want to listen to because they already have your position. What you want to do is you want to listen to the objections. But, you know, don't listen to the objections from the, the position of, I need to find a counter argument to their argument. Listen to the objection to try and see if there's something that you're missing. If there's something or someone that you're not considering, that's why you want to listen to the objection. That's how you reach uh, consensus eventually. You're seeking compromises. You're trying to find something that would give the most to the most people, to the most participants, the most people concerned, as, as the dictionary referred to them. Uh, this is based on, and this is what I, I call constructive disagreement. If you have a constructive disagreement, and I'll talk about that in, in the next uh, segment. If, if you reach consensus disagreement, we may still disagree. You may still not have 100% of people on board. But if they feel that they were heard, that their positions were made and people really listened and people really considered it and not just came up with, with objections and why not to accept your position, when they feel that they were heard, they will support the decision, even it's, if it's not what they were going to do. Uh, you know, having served on, on multiple boards, I can tell you that uh, not just once, more than once, uh, my position was not the consensus. But the fact that I felt that the other members have heard me, 
listen to me, considered my concerns, tried to address them and not just find counter arguments. I was in support of that decision. And I can tell you that when they didn't, when this was all about let's just reach the majority, oh, I fought this. I fought this really hard. I did not stand behind the board's decision. I took matters outside of the board. And I'm even talking about uh, my time serving on the board of the Plano Independent School District. I took things outside when I felt that my position was discounted because I was in the minority. Okay, this episode is getting uh, pretty long, so I'm I'm not going to spend too much time on uh, the the topic of constructive disagreement. Um, but, But really, the alternatives to have a constructive disagreement are the destructive disagreement. This is where everything becomes personal, emotional, irrational. And, and we don't really argue. I mean, we're, we're really competing. We're fighting. We're, we're adversaries. But there is also the politically correct disagreement. And this goes back to when you seek majority. This is when you have the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting. Are we able to have a constructive disagreement to, to reach consensus? Well, in... in A couple of my studies, what I found was that uh, when I, in an environment where my my analysis was it's a low trust environment, 61% of the participant described uh, disagreements as being unproductive. You know, when we disagree, we're unproductive. Didn't feel comfortable disagreeing in a meeting or avoided disagreements altogether. 61% of people. Versus 6% in a high-trust environment. That's 10 times more. So in in a low-trust environment, you're 10 times more likely to say, uh, disagreements are unproductive, I don't feel comfortable disagreeing, I avoid disagreements altogether. On the flip side, on a high-trust, in a high-trust environment, 94% said one of two things. We can disagree, and it's not personal. We can passionately disagree and remain friends. Actually, 30% said we can passionately disagree and remain friends. So it's 94% on on these two uh, versus 39% in a low-trust environment. So that's an increase of 141% saying we can disagree. So trust is required to hold the constructive disagreement to build consensus. So if I had to to time things or or to put a chain of events, a cause and effect uh, link, you have to start by building trust. That gives you the ability to hold constructive disagreement. That gives you the ability to reach consensus. One of the comments in that LinkedIn uh, poll that that I've uh, floated um, said, uh, as long as you don't bring individual agendas, I disagree. I want you to bring individual agree- uh, agendas. That, that's the whole point. The whole point is that you bring conflicting positions, that, that you attack the topic from all possible positions. By all means, bring your individual agenda. Now, when I say individual agenda, I don't mean personal agenda. I don't mean that uh, all I care about is me and nobody else. Uh, 
I do want to know what I mean. Bringing an agenda means that that I I have a position, and I want you to bring a position. I would like the position to be at the team level, the company level, whatever we group we represent. I would like it to be there. I would like it, you to bring your own individual one. The the one agenda that I completely disagree with that should never exist is a hidden agenda. An agenda that I don't share with you. Because that prevents having a constructive disagreement. That prevents have, uh, building trust. Uh, you don't trust person, but people that you don't know why or what their rationale is or what's, what's below the fold for them. What drives them? What makes them say certain things or, or make certain decisions? You want to know the why. Their why. I, I know who you're thinking of right now. But yeah, I, I want you to bring your agenda. I, I, I would prefer for you to bring your agenda because you will then to have an, a hidden agenda. But I don't have anything against agendas. So this is it. Uh, I, I think one of the comments made on my LinkedIn poll that uh, the type of decision making is contextual. I think that was a brilliant comment. And Janice, that, that was your comment. Um, and uh, you, you have to think about what contexts require what type of decision making. Do, do you need to be consultative? Do you need to uh, reach majority, simple majority, or a different majority, a super majority? Or, or do you need to reach consensus? As long as you state that up front. Uh, but I also think that the best way to reach important decisions is consensus with everything that I described about that. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.